open up your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 21. You recall we did 18, 19, and 20 last Wednesday night, and then we went back and did 17 on Sunday, and now we're at chapter 21. And we're gonna cover three more chapters tonight um, in this arc now of David's life. Uh, before we get there, uh, Judy handed this to me, and I gotta share it. Um, this is out of that highly uh, serious uh, news organization, the Babylon Bee. And the headline alone, David driving King Saul crazy by repeatedly playing smoke on the water. <laughs> That's so funny. These guys are so ridiculous. Servants at the royal palace were startled late last night by angry screams as King Saul flew into a rage after David, the young man, brought in to calm him down by playing the harp, would not stop playing the opening riff from Deep Purple's Smoke on the Water. Uh, 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 uh. Right. <laughs> anyway, I mean, I could that just, that's, that's the whole thing right there. Smoke on the Water. Can you imagine that on a harp? You know, but I read that and I'm laughing about this and then we go into worship and, it, and it, it struck me, as you're gonna see tonight, how many of the Psalms were written by David in the caves and when he was hiding out. You know what that means? That means David took along his harp. That he didn't leave that behind. That as he was on the run, one of the important uh, tools of his flight was the harp. And we know this because of all the songs that he wrote with that as he ran. But as, as we get to chapter 21, let me, let me bring you up to speed again. David has lost so much. He's lost the quiet anonymity of the Bethlehem Hills. I mean, just think about that alone, being raised there and growing up there, and no one knew who he was. He was barely even known in his own family, but there's something precious about that. There's something very quieting about that, and I think part of David's faith formation came in those lonely nights and, and days out on the hills, just alone with the sheep before the Lord. So he's lost that, that's gone now. He, he lost his position before the king, which would have been an admirable thing. To, you're, you're serving the king? You're not only his, his heart player, you're his armor bearer? Wow, David, that's fantastic. Well, he's lost that now. He's lost fame and celebrity which, okay, that's one that I'm like, big deal, no, no, no big loss there. But, but you may, may remember the, uh, the hit radio single, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands, right? But this is gone. None of those people who praised him and sang uh, the glory of his name, none of those people are there for him now. That's how fame works, by the way. But he's also lost, perhaps more than anything else, his dearest friend. Oh, not not the friend himself, he hasn't lost Jonathan, but he's lost the companionship of Jonathan. He's lost the immediacy, the support of Jonathan. All this is behind him now. David is on the run. David, who is chosen of God, has already lost so much. He's the branch and the root of Jesus, the Messiah, and yet he's running for his life. He's the anointed of the Holy Spirit, so get this, in David's life, Father, Son, and Spirit are all very involved, and yet David has lost so much. The man after God's own heart 
has lost seemingly everything. He's a man on the run. And as we pick up at the beginning of chapter 21, we are going to discover what happens next, which is the result of a spiritual man getting caught up in his soul. Now, we've been talking about spirit, soul, and body and looking at these, these leaders of Israel, looking at Saul the soul man, who never, never arrived at being a spiritual man. He was always up in his head. He's always been the soul man. He continues to be the soul man. But now we come to David, and, and, and I can back this up. David is a spiritual man. David is the spiritual man. Now, he's gonna do a lot of wrong things. But please understand before we go any further that being a spiritual man or woman doesn't mean being a perfect man or woman, okay? He's a spiritual man because of where his heart continually turns even when he fails, even when he sins, even when he falls down, his heart continually turns back to the Lord. David is the spiritual man. But as this flight begins and he's running for his life, we're gonna see what happens at the outset when he gets caught up in his brain, in his soul, Verse one of chapter 21, then David came to Nob to Ahimelech the priest and Ahimelech came trembling to meet David and said to him, why are you alone and no one with you? Now, we don't know why he's trembling. This is just David. Unless he's saying, this guy's the giant killer. Unless there's something about David's you know, reputation that frightens people, I don't know. Ahimelech is looking. Now, maybe word has reached Ahimelech that there's some, some problem in the palace, that there's some issue between Saul and, and David there's not a palace, by the way, but you know what I'm saying, that there's a problem there, I don't know, but, but Himelech is a little fearful when David shows up. Maybe it's just that a government official of Saul has come to Ahimelech at Nob, and this is just a church guy. You know, this is a little pastor to a tiny little church at Nob, and so all of a sudden the government's showing up. I don't know, but he's a little trembling, a little fearful. He says, why are you alone and no one with you? And David said to Ahimelech, the priest, the king has commissioned me with a matter. This is a lie. And he said to me, let no one know anything about the matter on which I am sending you and with which I have commissioned you, and I have directed the young men to a certain place. So, so I had men with me, but they're in a certain other place, and I'm on, I'm, I'm on special ops. Now, this is a secret mission of the king, he's saying, and, and it's not true. But David is in his head. Now, therefore, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever can be found. David's starving now. The priest answered David and said, well, there's no ordinary bread on hand. There is, there's consecrated bread, you know, on the table of showbread, right, those loaves. If only the young men have kept themselves from women. David answered the priest and said to him, surely women have been kept from us as previously when I set out and the vessels of the young men were holy, though it was an ordinary journey. How much more than today will their vessels be holy? So he's saying, it's all good, it's all fine. We haven't been with women. We're, we're actually in a, in, a, in a virginal state. Verse six, so the priest gave him consecrated bread. For there was no bread there, but the bread of the presence, which was removed from before the Lord in order to put hot bread in its place when it was taken away. Now one of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. Hmm, detained before the Lord. That's an interesting phrase. And his name was Doeg, the Edomite. Can you imagine having this kind of name? It is just shy of doofus. You know, Doeg. 
And he's the chief of Saul's shepherds. Now, this verse seems kind of strange, kind of out of place, because it just mentioned there's a guy there, but doesn't tell you anything about him. Then we read on, David said to Ahimelech, now, is there not a spear or sword on hand? For I brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's matter was urgent. Okay, this is getting, this story's falling apart. I need a weapon, I need some bread, I need covering here. And the priest said, will the sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you killed in the valley of Allah, behold, it is wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you would take it for yourself, take it. There is no other except it here. And David said, there is none like it. Give it to me. There are so many complications with these opening verses of chapter 21. We're gonna come back to it on Sunday because there are several things I wanna look at and think through with you and consider and try to answer because there's some bizarreties here. But David is clearly not thinking clearly because he's not thinking spiritually. He's on the run, he's fleeing, and this, this happens, the most spiritual among us, when we get anxious, when we get fearful, when we start to run through the day, we are not thinking in our spirit. We often get into the soul, trying to figure out how am I going to get through the next couple of hours? How am I going to make it through this week? And so we become soul men, soul women, and this is where David's at. He's, he's anxious, he is um, understandably paranoid, I mean, wouldn't you be? You came out of a place where spears were trying to pin you to the wall. He is the same young shepherd who bested a giant, armed with nothing but shepherd's gear and his faith, but now he sees the sword of Goliath as indispensable. His, his words, there's none like it. He didn't need it when you had the stones. Now, he did use it to chop off Goliath's head, but he didn't need Saul's armor. He didn't need the other weapons. Then now suddenly there's nothing like this. Listen, be careful of taking hold of the weapon, any weapon of the enemy, because it may eventually lead you into the enemy's camp. Verse 10, then David arose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, king of Gath. What? Gath. One of the five city-states of the Philistines? Gath is the hometown of Goliath, who he killed? And David comes rolling in with Goliath's sword? This is not clear thinking. This is a giant miscalculation. David goes to Gath. Why does he flee there? This is one of those areas we can only try to guess. I mean, true, it would be the last place that Saul would go looking for David. I mean, of all the place in the land of Israel and the Philistines and the surrounding nations, going to Gath would be, who would go there? That's so ridiculous. Maybe that's why David went there. Or maybe he thinks the king of the Philistines, Achish, would welcome the defection of Saul's great warrior. If I show up here and I, and I, and I stand with the Philistines. And this, this tells us a little bit too about the geopolitics of the day that we really don't understand the interplay between Philistine and Israelite and how they interacted when they weren't warring, how they dealt with one another, not unlike Palestinians and the Israelis today. You know, all we see is bombs flying in war and, and words shouted, but there's, there's still some kind of interplay, there's still interaction between Palestinians and Israelis that happens that you never hear about. So there, there are other things going on here we don't know. It's hard to get into David's head. All we can do is say, wow, he heads right into 
the heart of enemy territory, and all the servants of the king of the Philistines, they see the threat. Verse 11, but the servants of Achish said to him, is this not David, king of the land? That's interesting, he's not the king of the land. So somehow, word has gotten out that he's been anointed to be king, or maybe the servants are confused, but they shouldn't be. They should know the king of the Israelites is Saul, but they call him the king of the land, and they say, did they not sing of this one as they danced, saying Saul has slain his thousands and David his 10,000s? So they've heard the hit song. It's on the radios all around the land. And yet they call him king of Israel. He's not, not yet. But this is, this is a hint of the spread of David's notoriety. So he is very well known in Philistine territory. In verse 12, David took these words to heart and greatly feared Achish, king of Gath. The narrative, and we're gonna see this more than once tonight, is very brief. It just cuts to the chase. Here's where he goes, and we see that David now realizes he has blundered into enemy territory. David, who killed Goliath, is now afraid of the king of the Philistines. And he's there realizing, oh no, what have I done this is not good. Well, verse 13, so he disguised his sanity before them and acted insanely in their hands. You might underscore in their hands because at this point they've taken hold of him. We'll see this later. So they've got him. Uh, they're holding on to David. He realizes he's in serious danger, so he starts acting like he's nuts. He scribbled on the doors of the gate and let his saliva run down his beard. <laughs> you know, he is acting like an utter fool, like he's out of his mind. Now, I love this. Achish said to his servants, behold, you see the man, the, the man behaving as a madman? Why do you bring him to me? Do I lack madmen <laughs> that you have brought him to act the madman in my presence? That tells you something about the Philistines. Shall this one come into my house, he says. In other words, get him out of here. This guy's nuts. We don't want him around here. And it works, and they let him go, and David flees. Let me just ask you, so far in chapter 21, does this like, look like a spiritual man? <laughs> David is in his soul. David is not inquiring of the Lord. He is not seeking wise counsel. He is not surrounding himself with godliness. He is on the run, and he's trying to think it through, and he's not thinking well. I want you to turn in your Bibles. Keep your finger there and go all the way over to John chapter 18. John chapter 18. I want to do a little comparison briefly before we go on. Between Peter and Jesus in the garden. You think about Peter. You think about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane and think about David and, and his behavior. And at the beginning of John chapter 18, verse one, it says, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the ravine of the Kidron where there was a garden in which he entered with his disciples. Judas, who was betraying him, knew the place, for Jesus had often met there with his disciples. And Judas then, having received the Roman cohort and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. So Jesus knowing, note this, Jesus knowing all things that were coming upon him, went forth and said to them, whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus, the Nazarene. And he said to them, I am. 
If your Bible says, I am he, cross out the he, because that's not what it says. It's ego in me. He says to them, I am. And Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing with them. So when he said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. This is powerful. Therefore, he asked them again, saying, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus the Nazarene. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am. So if you seek me, let these go their way to fulfill the word which he had prayed, which he had spoke, that's back in chapter 17, verse 12, of those whom you have given me, I lost not one. Simon Peter then, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear, and the slave's name was Malchus. Why, do we, why are we told his name? Probably because he became a believer later, I'm guessing. So Jesus said to Peter, put the sword into the sheath. The cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? So think about David, what we've seen in chapter 21. Think about Peter and think about Jesus. Peter is swinging a sword wildly. He cuts off the right ear of the servant, the guy who's the biggest threat, right? Cuts off his ear and then Peter flees the scene only to end up warming himself by the fire of Caiaphas's camp or courtyard. And that's the place that he denied Jesus three times. He wields the sword, he comes up, striking out, he flees the scene and he ends up in the actual courtyard of the enemy. Peter looks kinda like David looks, getting hold of the sword of the enemy and heading right into enemy territory, not even thinking about what he's doing, getting himself into a serious bind and having to look like a fool, having to play a madman just to get out of there, but then there's Jesus. Peter played the soul man in the garden did what he thought was right, but this was not a spiritual move on his part. And same thing with David playing the soul man, but then here comes Jesus, and Jesus, the consummate spiritual man. If not for Jesus' cool demeanor in the garden, there might have been a fourth cross the next morning with Peter hanging on it. But Jesus is so calm. He is so collected. He is so in control. You know, if not for Jesus' behavior in the garden that night, there should have been multiplied millions of crosses over the last 2,000 years. One cross for every one of us. Unredeemed people, if not for Jesus, maintaining control over the whole situation to bring about God's will and purpose. That's the spiritual man. He faces the spiritual battle with peace and, and, and calm and fruit of the Spirit, self-control. David is not very controlled. He's acting very foolishly, getting himself into the position he gets himself into. Peter, same thing. He is out of control as he's swinging the sword and running for his life. Only Jesus shows us this, this right mind. See, that's the thing about the soul. I told you before, the soul's not a bad thing. God has given us spirit, soul, and body. But to be in a right mind, to have a right soul, means you need to be spirit-led. You need to be spirit-thinking, a mindset, a soul set, if you will, on the spirit. And that's Jesus all the way through trials and crucifixion because a right mind is at peace by a right spirit. So go back to David now. And considering that comparison, we see David, he ran to meet Goliath, but now he greatly fears 
Achish. Proverbs 29, 25, I think we quoted last week, if not the week before, the fear of man brings a snare. But he who trusts the Lord will be exalted. And because David fears a man, he has to play the madman. He has to look like he's crazy. (laughs) Even a spiritual man can appear mad if he relies on the soul. That's where David is. But again, David is a spiritual man. How do we know? I mean, looking at chapter 21, if that's all we had to go on, we might say this is not a spiritual man. This is a foolish boy acting all in his soul. How do we know David is a spiritual man? And I maintain David is. From start to finish, in meeting and watching David walk out life, we know that he's a spiritual man. Why? Because he always returns to the Lord in spirit. He always goes back to the Lord. Even after the greatest failures, even after the biggest sins, even after the problems he has created in his own family, you will see David continually going back to the Lord, back to the Lord, back to the Lord. Turn over to Psalm 56. Psalm 56. We'll get back to 1 Samuel in just a moment. But Psalm 56. We're gonna look at four psalms tonight along with the passages that are before us in 1 Samuel because all four of these psalms are written during 1 Samuel 21, 22, and 23. We know that because the psalms tell us. So Psalm 56, look at the heading for the choir director according to Jonat Alim Rehokim, which is probably a a musical tune. It's a miktam of David, uh, miktam... It's, it's, we don't know what miktam means, bottom line. It, it could mean a precious thing. It could mean an engraving. It could also mean something with a secret or hidden meaning. But it's a miktam of David, but note when he wrote it, when the Philistines seized him in Gath. So this psalm is written right at this time. Crazy David, saliva dripping down his beard, David. Scribbling on the gate, David. Maybe he was scribbling this psalm. I don't know. <laughs> But this is when he wrote it, right at that time, be gracious to me, O God, for man has trampled upon me. Fighting all day long, he oppresses me. My foes have trampled upon me all day long, for they are many who fight proudly against me. That's David in the soul. Listen, though, when I am afraid, I will put my trust in you, in God whose word I praise. In God, I have put my trust. Shall I not be afraid? What can mere man do to me? He's up in the spirit. But then he goes right back into this old man. All day long, they distort my words, all their thoughts against me for evil. They attack, they lurk, they watch my steps as they have waited to take my life because of wickedness. Cast them forth in anger. Put down the peoples, O God. And then he comes back into the spirit You have taken account of my wanderings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn back. And the day when I call, this I know, that God is for me. In God whose word I praise. In the Lord whose word I praise. In God I have put my trust. I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? Your vows are binding upon me, O God. I will render thank offerings to you. For you have delivered my soul from death, indeed my feet from stumbling, so that I may walk before God in the light of the living. I love it. This is such a beautiful example of a spiritual man bouncing back and forth between his head and his spirit. 
between head and heart, soul and spirit. He's struggling, but he's bringing it to God. This is always the spiritual person. The spiritual person is not the perfect person. The spiritual person is the one who goes to Jesus. The one who even starts out a psalm like this. People are trampling on me. This has been a terrible week, Lord. My life stinks. Oh, Jesus, I'm gonna praise you. <laughs> How many of you have been there where you're just like, all you can think of is the bad stuff and then the songs start and then you're coming back to the heart of worship and then you're thinking, oh, God really does have this. That's the spiritual person. That's the mindset on the spirit. Doesn't mean that you don't stress. It doesn't mean that you aren't anxious at times. It doesn't mean that you don't think about all that's going on, but you, you do, but you're doing it in the presence of the Lord and you're offering it over to the Lord. Turn to Psalm 34. Psalm 34. Another psalm written right at this time or immediately after it it says, a psalm of David when he feigned madness before Abimelech, who drove him away and departed. Watch this. I will praise the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul will make its boast in the Lord. The humble will hear it and rejoice. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. They looked to him and were radiant and their faces will never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his trouble. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. The angel of the Lord I suggest to you is Jesus. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for to those who fear him there is no want. The young lions do lack and suffer hunger, but they who seek the Lord shall not be in want of any good thing. Come, you children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Who is the man who desires life and loves length of days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and let your lips and your lips from speaking deceit. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears are open to their cry. The face of the Lord is against the evildoers to cut off the memory of them from the earth. The righteous cry the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all of his bones. Not one of them is broken, prophetic of Jesus. Evil shall slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the soul of his servants, and none of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. And Psalm 34 is all spirit. This is all spirit, man. This is all a man who is before the Lord and trusting in the Lord. It's so interesting. I was talking with Rod uh, Gilmore back on Monday and he said, I was reading the Psalms this week and he goes, you know what? David must have really suffered from serious depression. <laughs> and, and you know, he's right to a degree because as you read through the Psalms, so many of the Psalms begin in a dark place. They begin in the place of the soul with anxious thoughts and fears and worries and stress. And so many of the Psalms, in fact, every single Psalm but one ends in faith. Because the spirit man 
might start in the soul, but always directs himself, the spirit woman always directs herself ultimately to the Lord, and what starts as fear, doubt, or anxiety turns to the Lord and becomes faith. And that's being in the spirit. It's not that you're, you know, we have this wrong perception if we think that spiritual people don't stress. Spiritual people just seem to have it figured out. They're always smooth, they're always calm. No, they always go to the Lord, that's it. That's it. That's what defines the spiritual person. And the fastest, most effective way to move from a weak, fearful soul into a strong spirit is to come into the presence of the Lord by prayer, by Bible study, in worship. When we come into his presence, we find that peace and our spirit is enlivened. Back to 1 Samuel chapter 22 which tells us, so David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's household heard, they went down there to him. To the caves, the cave of Adullam. There are caves in the western foothills of Judah just outside of Bethlehem, so not a long journey for his family to come down to where he is. But it's there, deep in the cave of Adullam, that the Lord begins a deep work in David. He's in the caves. I think I mentioned on Sunday, don't romanticize that. It's a cave, all right? We climb up into the rocks of, of Engedi. A beautiful place, a waterfall, water runs all the way down the middle of that. It's a beautiful place to be, caves up throughout the hills, but it's rugged, it's dry desert, it's hard living. And this is what David now is heading into, the cave of Adullam. And note that his family, they come to him, including his brothers, Right, Eliab, his brother, when he came and ended up fighting Goliath, was acting like Goliath, putting his little brother down. His brothers obviously at one point in life disdained him, but now they're coming to him just like Jesus. Remember his family, his brothers, John chapter seven tells us his brothers were not yet believing yet. But after the resurrection, well, at least two of the letters that we have in the New Testament are by brothers of Jesus because they did come to faith. They did come to the Lord, just as now David's family comes down to him. I think that's pretty cool. And as a, a brokenhearted David goes deeper with the Lord, the Lord begins to send the brokenhearted to David. Verse two, everyone who is in distress and everyone who is in debt and everyone who is discontented gathered to him and he became captain over them and there were about 400 men with him. Wow. Captain of the losers. This is what David becomes, captain of the outcast, captain of, well, three words, distressed, indebted, and discontented. And that's a three-part sermon right there. Distressed, matzok, which means in hardship or anguish. Indebted, hutnoshe, which means you're gonna like this, beyond credit. You can't even get any more credit. That's, that's how in debt these guys are. And then discontented is a really descriptive Hebrew word, which is marnafesh, or marnapesh. And it, it literally means lumpy-throated. You know when you get a lump in your throat and you hate that feeling? 
because we get that when we're sorrowful or on the verge of tears. That's what we're talking about, discontented, indebted, distressed people. Life is hard for them, so they come to David, they meet up with David, they're like David, they feel like the world is against them. But you know what? These 400 men are gonna become his IDF. They will be David's strike force. They will be known later on as David's mighty men. They come out of the place of being cast off losers and they come into a place of might because now they're joining themselves to the man that God called after my own heart. David's mighty men. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1.26, consider your calling, brethren. There were not many noble, not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty. Think about us when we got saved. What did we have to offer Jesus, really? Now, one or two of you had something special to give. Good for you. But the rest of us <laughs> suffered from a severe inadequacy when it comes to eternal things, and yet the Lord received us, pulled us in, Listen, just as the distressed, indebted, and discontented went to David, so the anxious, insolvent, and lumpy-throated are welcome to come to the son of David, who said, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Anyone tired of hearing that verse? I mean, we read it a lot around here. I love those words of Jesus. I love just hearing Jesus say, come to me. And, and the invitation is so wide open. Come to me all, all who are weary and heavy laden. That would be everyone who is in distress or in debt or has a lump in their throat. Come to me, I will give you rest for your souls. And so it's amazing, in this cave, God is doing a deep work in David, and he's now doing a deep work in other people. You see, God's work in your life is not a vacuum. What God is doing in your life is for other people as well. Usually when we're in the throes of difficulty in our lives, we are completely unaware of that. We just think it's us and Jesus if we're in the spirit, if we're being spiritual, if we have a spiritual mindset, we just think this, this is me and God and God's gonna get me through this, come on, Lord. And we're not even seeing the fact, we've got these blinders on that there are people all around us who are being impacted by the work God is doing in us. And so these 400 men, and we'll find out along with their wives and children, are all gathering to David and God begins working in all of them and I believe God does that not only in that cave, but he's doing it perhaps even here tonight, moving among us, working among us. Keep your finger there and jump over one more psalm, Psalm 142. Psalm 142. This is called a maskil of David. A maskil is a teaching psalm. This maskil of David when he was in the cave. It doesn't tell us which one, but I have a feeling it's the cave of Adullam. He writes and says, Psalm 142, I cry aloud with my voice to the Lord. I make supplication with my voice to the Lord. That's what the spiritual person does. I pour out my complaint before him. I declare my trouble before him. When my spirit was overwhelmed within me, you knew my path. In the way where I walk, they have hidden a trap for me. Look to the right and see there is no one who regards me. There is no escape for me. No one cares 
for my soul. I cried out to you, O Lord. I said, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Give heed to my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are too strong for me. Bring my soul, (laughs) bring my soul out of prison so that I may give thanks to your name. And then he says this, the righteous will surround me for you will deal bountifully with me. Here in the cave of Adullam, David is surrounded, not necessarily by people you'd think of as the righteous. No, these are the indebted and the distressed and the discontent, but they're around David and they're gathered to him and they will become fiercely loyal. They will stand with David and the work that God's doing in David's heart is going to affect these guys as well. Psalm 142 is another beautiful example of of a man crying out from his soul in the spirit, going to the spiritual mindset before the Lord, this is the spiritual man. A man who is surrounded by losers being made righteous. I like that. Verse three of 1 Samuel 22. And David went from there to Mizpah of Moab, And he said to the king of Moab, please let my father and my mother come and stay with you until I know what God will do for me. And then he left them with the king of Moab and they stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. So while he's in the cave of Adullam, he takes his folks over to Moab. Why Moab? Maybe because great granny Ruth was from there. Okay, so there's family lying here and he has relatives there, and he would be known there, and so David takes his parents there. This, this is one of those rare references, as we mentioned before, to David's mother. When we talked about his mom before, remember there are just four times that she's even mentioned. She's never named. Is her name Netzavet? I don't know. But, but what's cool here is that it tells us that David's folks in their old age And there's a reference back in chapter 17 that we saw Sunday to Yeshai, Jesse, being advanced in years. So Jesse's an old man. Nitzavet, if that's her name, his wife is older. And you know what? They're together. They're together. I think that's just precious, and I don't want you to skip that. They are together in their old age, still together after all these years. It's like my dad says, 60 years with Mabel. And my mom's name isn't Mabel. (laughs) Still together. And what does the spiritual person do? What does the spiritual man do? He honors his parents. David has the presence of mind here, I suggest because he's thinking spiritually to make sure mom and dad are protected while he's on the run. To make sure that they are going to be okay. Exodus 20 verse 12 is still working for David. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. You know what's interesting to me is that Paul quotes that. He quotes from Exodus chapter 20, verse 12. He he says, Ephesians chapter six, verse one, children obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise. But what's interesting to me about that is, is Paul chooses to quote Exodus 20, at the beginning of the greatest spiritual warfare chapter in all of Paul's letters. Before we get to spiritual warfare and fighting the spiritual battles, he says, take care of your parents, and that's what David does. So there's a presence of mind here that says, in all of my battles for the Lord, 
I owe something to mom and dad. I need to care for them. Whatever that looks like for you, however that is, but I think that's part of spiritual warfare, to be honest, is walking with integrity before our parents. Verse five. So the prophet Gad said to David, do not stay in the stronghold, depart and go into the land of Judah. So <laughs> the Lord's saying, no more hiding out, David. You gotta face this. Go back into the land. So David departed and went into the forest of Haret, which literally the forest of Haret means the woods of the forest. That's all it means. So he goes into this, and this is a heavily forested area. I know a lot of people don't think of Israel as forested. Well, that's Israel back in the 1800s. You go back to, you know, uh, 1000 BC, and it was a beautiful, even in, in the first century, a beautiful forested land. And so David heads there to the woods of the forest, and verse six tells us that when Saul heard that David and the men who were with him had been discovered, uh, Saul, by the way, he was sitting in Gabeah under the tamarisk tree, this is, what's, what's it with Saul and trees? Every time we find him, he's sitting under a tree somewhere. Well, now he's under the tamarisk tree on the height with his spear in his hand and all his servants were standing around him. Saul said to his servants who stood around him, hear now, O Benjamites, will the son of Yeshai also give to you all the fields and, and, and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds? For all of you have conspired against me so that there is no one who discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Yeshai and there is none of you who is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in ambush as it is this day. It's pathetic. My goodness, verse six, he's sitting under the tamarisk tree holding his spear. Saul is passive aggressive. And then in verse seven, he starts saying, can, can the son of Yeshai, he won't even say David's name, can the son of Yeshai give you what I can give you? Saul is not only passive aggressive, he's prideful. And then in verse eight, you've all conspired against me. He's paranoid. This is the soul man. And it's tragic to watch because we see this passive aggressive, prideful paranoia, this fear, this boastfulness, this guilt and manipulation. This is the stuff of the soul. Spiritual person is not manipulative. They don't guilt trip others into doing what they want them to do. They don't sit and think about how they bless the world around them. And they don't do things passive aggressively. And if any of those things are characteristic in your life, then you need to lean into the spirit and he'll, he'll show you. But these are typical traits of the soul man, the soul woman, the greatest motivator of the spiritual man or woman is love. That's the one that moves. That's the one that motivates. That's the one, that, and that's where you know. That's key to knowing I am moving, walking in the spirit. I'm a spiritual person is, do I love people? We're, we're talking this morning, uh, Brandy Hayes. Is Brandy here tonight? I don't think she is because she's got to be exhausted. She and Jim have been hopping about Europe for the last couple or three, I don't know, years. Uh, no, months, weeks, whatever. But they've been gone for a while and doing all this stuff and, and she talked about being on a bus in Europe, packed in. She said they jammed us all in there and I'm looking one way and Jim and I are back to back and Jim's looking the other way and we got our luggage there and all these people and it's hot and we're stuffed in there and everyone's sweating and stinking. And she goes, and I just sat in that bus and I, I couldn't help it. I just love these people. 
She said, for whatever reason, as I'm in the bus, I'm surrounded by all these people and I'm just looking around going, you know what, God, God has a desire for everyone here. You know, and it was just cool to hear, but that's, that's someone in the spirit where you're looking around with love, where you have love for people where otherwise you wouldn't. The Bible says love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not brag, is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly, does not seek its own, it's not provoked, it does not take into account a wrong suffered. It does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. Agape, love, never fails. 1 Corinthians 13, you know it well. That's the character trait, love, even as Paul breaks it down for us, of the spiritual man, the spiritual woman. It's a way to know, I'm, I'm walking in this, I'm loving people I shouldn't be loving because I'm walking in the spirit. Verse nine, so there's Saul, soul man. He's sitting there, and then Doeg, the Edomite, who was standing by the servants of Saul, said, I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob, to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub. He inquired of the Lord and gave him provisions and gave him the sword of Goliath, the Philistine. And then the king sent someone to summon Ahimelech the priest, the son of Ahitub, and all his father's household, the priests who were in Nob, and all of them came to the king. Now, I don't know if that happened or not, but the Bible doesn't tell us that happened. In fact, what's happening here is this guy, this doeg is embellishing. The Bible does not tell us that, um, that he inquired of the Lord for David. It may have happened, I'm not saying it didn't, but the Bible didn't say that in the story where David's there in chapter 21. And here he's adding to that and he's saying, and all the priests came and, and they were all there with David and he's impl implicating all of the priests when it was just David and Ahimelech. So this guy is not being straightforward here and he's stirring up Saul's, what Doeg does. Saul said, listen now, son of Ahitub. Oh, wait a minute, verse 11. Then the king sent someone to summon Ahimelech the priest, the son of Ahitub and all his father's household, the priests who were in Nob, and all of them came to the king. And Saul said, listen now, son of Ahitub. And he answered, here I am, my Lord. Saul then said to him, why have you and the son of Yeshai conspired against me in that you have given him bread and a sword and have inquired of God for him so that he would rise up against me by lying in ambush as it is this day? Hear the paranoia? This is the soul, man. And then Ahimelech answered the king and said, and who among all your servants is as faithful as David? Even the king's son-in-law, who is captain over your guard and is honored in your house. What, David? This is interesting. Ahimelech, the very first words out of his mouth are in defense of David. And then verse 15 did I just begin to inquire of God for him today? Far be it from me. Do not let the king impute anything to his servant or to any of the household of my father, for your servant knows nothing at all of this whole affair. Listen, part of the reason David may have made up the story about why he was sent to Nob in the first place back in chapter 21 may have been to protect Ahimelech and the priests there. What they don't know can't hurt them. 
So he doesn't tell them that he's being pursued by Saul. He doesn't tell them what's happened. He keeps that to himself. Now, David's still lying. We'll deal with that Sunday. But he may be trying to protect these guys. And so now Ahimelech answers, and he does so honestly. I don't know what's going on. Yeah, David came, but isn't he honored in your house? And we didn't, what are you talking about? I don't understand. But the king said, you shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's household. And the king said to the guards who were attending him, turn around and put the priest of the Lord to death because their hand also is with David and because they knew that he was fleeing and did not reveal it to me. They didn't know. They didn't know. But Saul is so wrapped up in this in this insane paranoia. But it's interesting, verse 17, the servants of the king were not willing to put forth their hands to attack the priests of the Lord. That's impressive. That's intense pressure from the king on these servants standing around. Put them to death! And the servants were like, these are the priests of the Lord. Can't, I, can't, I can't do that. You're gonna, I'm not going to do that. I'm not gonna, and, and they won't. They will not act on this. Hebrews 13, 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. An account to who? An account to the Lord. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would not be profitable for you. But listen, there's a line that we draw, a very clear line. The servants of Saul, they show great integrity here. They put the Lord above their king. They don't act on the command to murder the priest because, hey, that's not okay. And under any leadership, government, workplace, church, this has got to be the standard. Submission to leadership ends when the leaders ask you to go against the Lord. And I don't care where, what the situation is. When you are being asked by someone over you in some type of position to do something that you know is in violation of the Lord, you don't do it. That's where you say, no, I, I can't. I can't. You know, the Bible says in Romans 13, obey the governing authorities. Submit to them. You know, First Peter chapter two, same thing. You gotta obey the governing authorities until you are asked to do something that opposes the very word of God. And that's when you say, I can't do that. Remember during the, the lockdowns, there was a pastor up in Canada who was thrown into prison for it, right? And I may have mentioned it at the time. The only thing that bothered me about how this pastor handled that, and, and this is very easy for me to Monday morning quarterback a fellow pastor is thrown into prison. So understand, I'm being a little foolish here, even in bringing this up. But the one thing that I saw was that he went limp, <laughs> and they had to literally drag him out of his church. We talked about this before when, when Paul was called out by Rome to be taken to prison. He didn't go limp. He went, do what you gotta do. You know, I know what the law says. And the law says I'm in violation of your law, so clap me in irons, but I will not, I will not disobey the Lord. And to me, that's, I, 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 I'm a weirdo. I pray this prayer, Lord, if I'm ever in that position where the hate speech thing takes over and becomes some kind of law that says I can't even teach your word and I get in trouble for it, I don't wanna go limp. I wanna meet him at the jail and walk of my own free will right into the jail because I cannot violate the word of God 
but I'm not gonna fight. Do what you gotta do. These guys show this great integrity in this moment and they don't step out and follow the king. And I think that this is important in church as well where we have leadership and different church fellowships and whatever. Hey, as long as the leaders are following Jesus, follow the leaders. Paul says that. 1 Corinthians 11, verse one, be followers of me even as I also am of Christ. So if I'm following Jesus, follow me because guess what? You're following Jesus. But if I step off, if I'm heading a way that is ungodly or unbiblical or immoral, don't follow. You only follow as the leader is leading you in the direction of Christ. Well, so they won't do it, but the king said, verse 18, to Doeg, you turn around and attack the priests. And Doeg the Edomite turned, why does he have an Edomite serving in his court? Why, why does Saul not have an Israelite? This is, now ultimately the Edomites are gonna marry in to Israel and be among the Jewish people. King Herod is half Edomite, half Jewish. Okay, and which is part of the reason that people hated him so much in the first century. But at this point, the Edomites were completely of Edom, so he's got this outsider who's there, and he calls him, you attack the priest, and Doeg the Edomite turned around and attacked the priest, and he killed that day 85 men who wore the linen ephod. Now, in this bloodbath, which we weren't there, we can't know exactly how it happened, how does one man kill 85 men? The easiest way would be if the 85 men stand their ground. These guys are not running, shrieking, fearful. They're standing there one after another. I'm assuming, maybe I'm presuming, I don't know, I can't prove this, but he took down 85 priests of God who I think just stood there and took it that day. And he struck Nob, the city of the priests, with the edge of the sword, both men and women, children and infants. Oxen, donkeys, and sheep he struck with the edge of the sword. This truly was a sickening bloodbath. But, verse 20, one son of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abiatar, escaped and fled after David. Abiatar told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. Now, before you go any further, I share this with staff this morning. We get one verse of this conversation. Don't miss the fact that while the Bible sometimes gives us a very black and white, here's what happened, don't miss the emotion that must have been going on. These are human beings. This man has just seen his, his brothers, his father, his fellow priests murdered before his eyes and the entire town taken down. I don't know if he was married, if he lost wife, children, I don't know. But when he comes to David, it's not, and Abiatar told David that day. Huh. I, I can't imagine anything other than weeping and, and horror and terror in his eyes as he comes to David and tells him what took place, how horrific this was. And David, verse 22, said to Abiatar, I knew on that day when Doeg the Edomite was there, verse seven of chapter 21, that he would surely tell Saul, I have brought about the death of every person in your father's household. Wow, this is the spiritual man. He says, this is on me. David, this was not your fault. 
You couldn't have really known what Doeg would do. You couldn't have known what the outcome would be. You had no way of knowing that an entire city would be raised to the ground like that. You couldn't possibly have known this, David. This is on me. This is my fault. And it's not like this false guilt in David. But he doesn't sidestep the blame. He looks into the eyes of Abiatar and he just says, I hear your pain this is my fault. I am so sorry. What I see in David here is an honest spiritual sensitivity. He's just, he's heartbroken over what he sees. By the way, what does David think of Doeg? Turn to Psalm 52. Psalm 52. It's a psalm for the choir director Amaskil, another teaching psalm of David, when Doeg the Edomite came and told Saul and said to him, David has come to the house of Ahimelech. So this is when David wrote this particular psalm. Verse one, why do you boast in evil, O mighty man? The loving kindness of God endures all day long. Your tongue devises destruction like a sharp razor, a worker of deceit. You love evil more than good, falsehood more than speaking what is right. Verse four, you love all words that devour, O deceitful tongue, but God will break you down forever. He will snatch you up and tear you away from your tent and uproot you, uproot you from the land of the living. The righteous will see and fear and will laugh at him, saying, behold, the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and was strong in his evil desire. Interesting. Doeg's name means fearful. And often the enemies of the Lord are. And they mask that fear with, with meanness, with anger, with brutality, with wickedness. It's all burying what really is deep down inside. And that is a fear before the Lord. Doeg is an ugly type, note this, of Antichrist. And if you listen to the psalm again, read it over again, David could just as easily be describing Antichrist. What's interesting in the scriptures is that this <laughs> scheming, sycophantic Edomite is very similar to Antichrist in many ways, driven by fear, you know, drunk on self-protection, seeking his own, evil in his desire, willing to carry out the most evil of activity, murderous and bloody. This guy's a picture of Antichrist early on. Uh, John wrote in 1 John chapter 2, verse 18, children, it's the last hour. And just as you, as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know it's the last hour. What does that mean? That means there's Antichrist with a capital A. The Antichrist who is coming, who scripture foretells as coming during that time of tribulation. But throughout history, there have been many Antichrists, little a. Many Antichrists in different generations and their purpose is always the same, to try to crush God's people, which is what Doeg's doing right here. By contrast, David continues for us as a type or picture of Jesus Christ ultimately the son of David. Psalm 52, verse eight says, as for me, I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the loving kindness of God forever and ever. 
I will give you thanks forever because you have done it. And I will wait on your name for it is good in the presence of your godly ones. What's great about Psalm 52, as with the other Psalms, is you can know David's mindset. So you can recognize, even as he responds to Abiathar back in chapter two, uh, 22, verse 22, when he takes it on himself, he says, surely this, I have brought this on your house. He's not wallowing in self-pity. He, he's commiserating, he's understanding, and he's taking responsibility. But then we see in the Psalm, we see a very spiritual man who recognizes the evil one is Doeg and knows in himself that he does stand before the Lord. Man, David is developing a great faith on the run. This is, we're, we're watching the refinement of, of a man who at first was kind of all caught up in his soul, but he is, he is turning to a spiritual man more and more with every day that goes by deeper and deeper into the caves. He is just becoming more spiritual. And in verse 23, he says to Abiatar, stay with me, do not be afraid, for he who seeks my life seeks your life. You are safe with me. Literally, you are my charge. David devotes himself to the high priest who, who will become his high priest, Abiatar. He devotes himself to the priest that day saying, you are now my responsibility. Stay with me. And Abiatar is gonna remain faithful to David for the rest of his life. That chapter gives us an amazing contrast between David, the spiritual man, and Saul's passive-aggressive, prideful paranoia. We see in this the spiritual man who takes humble responsibility for a situation and for the surviving priest. Last thing on Abiatar, his protection by David fulfills prophecy because Abiatar is of the lineage that replaced the house of Eli, that is the house of Zadok. And the Zadokian priesthood comes of this lineage of Abiathar. If Abiathar had been wiped out that day at Nob, then the promise of the, of the Zadokian priesthood would have failed. So we see God maintaining his plans even in the salvation of this one priest. Chapter 23, verse one. Then they told David, saying, Behold, the Philistines are fighting against Keilah and are plundering the threshing floors. So David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go and attack these Philistines? And the Lord said to David, Go and attack the Philistines and deliver Keilah. But David's men said to him, Behold, we're afraid here in Judah. How much more then if we go to Keilah against the ranks of the Philistines? Verse four, Then David inquired of the Lord once more. And the Lord answered him and said, Arise, go down to Keilah, for I will give the Philistines into your hand. So David and his men went to Keilah and fought with the Philistines, and he led away their livestock and struck them with a great slaughter. Thus David delivered the inhabitants of Keilah. Keilah means fortress. This was a fortress city. In fact, we know from archaeological finds, we know right where Keilah was. And when I say we, I mean them, you know, the archaeologists, not me, but you know what I'm saying. We know it was a heavily fortified, gated Israelite city, Keilah. It's about three to four miles south of the cave of Adullam where David had been hiding out and then David came out into the forest lands of Judah and now he's supposed to go down to, to um, Keilah. Keilah's in the lowlands of the Judean hills. Keilah, the reason I tell you all that is it was Saul's responsibility to protect this city. Saul is king of Israel 
was responsible for the inhabitants of Keilah, for the city of Keilah, and he was doing nothing. What's Saul doing? He's sitting under his tamarisk tree, holding his spear and brooding. And he's not, he's so distracted, so focused on his hatred for David that he can't see the real enemy. And that's a big deal for us in the spiritual fight. If we get focused out of hatred or anger at someone who should be a brother or sister, we will not be able to see the enemy when he comes. And we will not fight the fight that we were called to fight. And I think that applies to any of God's called, any of God's leaders, of God's servants. We can get distracted by mistrust or jealousy of other leaders, of other churches. That is such a distraction. I think one of the biggest distractions in the church today is mistrust of a local church that is not us. And we have to be careful about that because when we become jealous of other leaders, the people always suffer and the battle is not fought correctly. David's leadership inquires of the Lord. He doesn't say, well, why isn't Saul fighting? Shouldn't Saul go down there? It's Saul's problem. You never see Saul hating, or you never see David hating on Saul, ever. You see Saul hating David. David never returns fire for fire. David never gets distracted by bitterness toward Saul. And we're gonna see that in a future study that's so, so impactful. David's leadership inquires of the Lord. He does it twice here. He inquires of the Lord in verse two, and then in verse four, he inquires a second time. And you know what? Our greatest failures in life, in the spiritual walk, tend to come when we fail to inquire of the Lord. When we go rushing ahead with our plans, whatever they are, without stopping and saying, well, wait a minute, what does God want to do here? What, is, what would the Lord like us to do? How would he want me to handle this situation? Jeremiah 29, 12. You will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. Psalm 50, verse 15. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I shall rescue you and you will honor me. Isaiah 65, 24 will also come to pass. Before they call, I will answer. While they're still speaking, I will hear. And, and the Bible is replete with verses calling upon us to call upon the Lord. And I just love that phrase, David inquired of the Lord. David inquired of the Lord. Why does he do it twice? Confirmation. Confirmation, not for himself, the first inquiry, David got God's answer and he's ready to go, but his men are shaking in their boots. So he says, well, okay, I'll take it back to the Lord one more time for you guys. And he prays for them and he prays to the Lord and says one more time, should we go down? And the Lord says, tell them, go down. I got this. I will do this. So now David's got this, well, I would call it the persistent pattern of prayer. I'm not telling you anything you don't know. But persistence in prayer is what we're invited to, not one-offs. Prayer is never just a one-off. It is an ongoing, continual pursuit and conversation with the Lord. When James chapter 5, verse 16, when the, the writer says, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed, and then says, the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much, You've heard that verse. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Well, first problem is righteous. Okay, you are righteous in Jesus. So you don't have to write that one off so quickly. 
Well, it's only the righteous ones who are effective prayers. No, no, no. If you're in Jesus Christ, you are righteous, therefore you can be effective. But I love the wording, the effective prayer. Effective prayer is, well, the word is uh, energumene, which comes from the word energeo. Energeo, energy. It's where we get our word energy. The energetic prayer. But it's not just energetic, it's kind of hyper, you know, it's working prayer. It's prayer in progress. It's if at first you're still not sure, pray, pray again and keep praying. And so David returning to the Lord to inquire, this is not faithlessness. This is the spiritual man saying, well, I'm going to go back again. I'm going to find the assurance from the word of God. And so he asks twice and twice the Lord says, go down. Saul's not going to do it. So David takes his men, verse six, and they go down and there's a great deliverance Verse six, it came about when Abiatar, the son of Ahimelech, fled to David at Keilah, that he came down with an ephod in his hand. Now, the ephod, this is the, with the 12 stones, right, that the high priest would wear, and this is how they would pray, and they would come before the Lord, and the Urim and the Tumim were involved. How, Rick? I don't know. I wasn't there. Some way that they would interact with the ephod when praying to the Lord for answer, Somehow the Lord responded through that and it's a mystery to this day. But he comes down and he has an ephod and when it was told um, to Saul that David had come to Keilah, Saul said, God has delivered him into my hand for he shut himself in by entering a city with double gates and bars. Okay, before I get back to the ephod, so Saul summoned all the people for war to go down to Keilah to besiege David and his men. He wouldn't fight the Philistines who are attacking his own people. But now that David's in the town, let's go get him. Because Keilah, again, was a fortified town with double gates, hard to get into and hard to get out of. So what does Saul think? What does the soul man think? God has delivered him into my hand. No, he hasn't. Listen, we we saw this last week. The soul man can sound very religious. The soul man knows the language, can can speak the lingo of the church and be way off spiritually. And we see this with Saul. And he wants to go down now and, and take him out. He actually thinks that God is on his side here. And you know what? Saul doesn't inquire of the Lord. Saul doesn't say, Lord, is this you? Is this really, do you want me to? He never asks. He just assumes Whereas the spiritual man, David, is persistent in prayer even when the answer is not what he wants to hear. Watch this, so verse nine. Now David knew that Saul was plotting evil against him, so he said to Abiatar the priest, bring the ephod, bring it it here. And then David said, O Lord, God of Israel, your servant has heard for certain that Saul is seeking to come to Keilah to destroy the city on my account. Note that. David doesn't say Saul's coming to kill me. He says Saul is coming to destroy the city because of me. He is other-centered. This is the spiritual man. I mean, you see it in his language. Will the men of Keilah surrender me into his hand? Will Saul come down just as your servant has heard? O Lord God of Israel, I pray, tell your servant. And the Lord said, he will come down. So he confirmed, yep, Saul's on his way. David said, Will the men of Keilah surrender me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, they will surrender you. What? These are the guys 
that David has just delivered. This is the city that he has just saved. And David inquires of the Lord via the ephod. Lord, is Saul really coming? Yes, he's coming. Are they gonna hand me over? Yes, they will. Listen, inquiring of the Lord is the secret to abiding in the Lord. And we sing the song, abide. I wanna abide. We say, I depend on you, do we? We do when we are inquiring of the Lord, when we are taking everything to the Lord and seeking his wisdom and his counsel. The spiritual man is persistent in prayer, even when the answer is not the one he wants to hear. David doesn't get a good answer here. Yeah, this is gonna be bad, David. <laughs> yeah, they're gonna betray you, David. What? But David is persistent to seek the Lord, even in this situation. Man, note the contrast between David at Nob and David at Keilah. In chapter 21, David is all up in his head. He's running foolishly, he's lying, he's trying to get what he needs and he moves on. At Keilah, he's inquiring of the Lord. He's taken it before the Lord. There is a calm prayerfulness here. There's a trust in the divine direction, even in, in a divine escape at the right time. This this prayerful persistence, this inquiry of David to the Lord, it packs the Psalms. It's all over the place in the Psalms. It defines David's long season on the run. And it fulfills, listen to me, it fulfills God's description of David as a man after his own heart. 1 Samuel 13, 14. And I, I told you before, and I wanna underscore this, it's so important. A man after God's own heart doesn't mean David's heart. It means God's heart. He is just a man after God's heart. It's not that David has a holy heart. No, David is a man after God's heart. David is a spiritual man in pursuit of the Lord, seeking the Lord. Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Why? Because the pure in heart are looking for God. The pure in heart want to know God. The pure in heart are persistently after God, pursuing the heart of God. And if we do so, we hear him. And we know his direction. And one day we're gonna see him face to face. But again, this is, this is tragic because David delivers Keilah and in response, they sell him out. They're gonna sell him out to Saul. What if David had just assumed their loyalty. I mean, he delivered them, right? He, he, he just took care of them. Of course, I don't need to pray about that. I know the answer. What if he had said that and had not inquired of the Lord? See, even if you think you know the answer, it's always good to inquire. I think this is what Solomon meant in Proverbs 3, verse five, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. He says, in all your ways, that is if you know the answer or if you don't, in all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It would have made sense for David to say, we should be safe at Keilah. They'll fight with us, we fought for them. But that's not the case. David wisely seeks the Lord's counsel on this and finds out that he's gonna be betrayed. 
David will write Psalm 55, which comes so much from the spirit of Jesus. Psalm 55, verse 12, it's not an enemy who reproaches me, then I could bear it, nor is it one who hates me who has exalted himself against me, then I could hide myself from him. But it is you, a man of my equal, my companion, and my familiar friend. We who had sweet fellowship together walked in the house of God in the throng. As Jesus did with Judas, as David would have at one time even with Saul, that kind of betrayal is even more painful, but it's painful to know these people who we just delivered are now gonna betray us. You know, Paul wrote this. I'd never seen this before. I, I picked up on this this week. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 15. He said, I will most gladly spend and be expended for your souls. Kind of like David at Keilah, right? I'm gonna, I'm gonna expend myself for you, for your deliverance, for your protection. But Saul then says, or Paul says, if I love you more, Am I to be loved less? Translation, the more abundantly I love you, the less I am loved. This is what Paul is saying. Paul will also say in his last letter of his life to Timothy, I'm all alone here. Every church in Asia left me. Paul had the right to say it. The more I loved, it seemed like the less I was loved in return. Well, why serve others if that's the case? And I assure you, <laughs> it can seem that way. It can seem like the more you love other people, the more alone you end up. The more you feel less loved, the more you feel isolated. It, it can feel that way. So why serve others? If they're just gonna betray you anyway or end up loving you less, why do it? And the shining answer is because Jesus did. That's what Jesus did. He loved asking for nothing in return. That's agape. He loved us. He modeled humble servanthood even to those who would betray him, even to those who would see him dead. First Peter chapter two, verse 21, you've been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. Hey, there was deceit in David's mouth. You know, I mean, he's not a perfect guy. But Jesus, while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. He kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And that's how you serve. And that's how you love. You entrust yourself to God. And if you find yourself all alone, I have loved and I have given and I've gotten nothing in return, then you turn to the Lord and accept his love and get a wash in his love for you. Don't let betrayal knock you off your game. Let me put it more succinctly. Don't let betrayal knock you out of the church. Because I've seen it too much. And you've seen it. And some of you have felt this. And people leave church over it because their eyes are on the people rather than on the Lord who modeled agape. So we keep our eyes on him. We serve because he serves. And the more we serve like he serves, guess what? The more we become like him. The whole spiritual man, spiritual woman, Christ-like person, isn't that the goal? To be like Jesus? To love whether or not we're getting it back? That's not the point. We love because he first loved us. So just keep inquiring of the Lord. Keep your eyes on him. Be a person after his heart. Verse 13 
Then David and his men, about 600, arose and departed from Keilah, and they went wherever they could go. Notice it's 600 now, it was 400. It's growing. More people are being drawn to this godly man. And they went wherever they could go, and when it was told Saul that David had escaped from Keilah, he gave up the pursuit. David stayed in the wilderness in the strongholds and remained in the hill country in the wilderness of Zip. Pretty much what he's getting out of life right now is Zip. And Saul sought him every day, but note this, God did not deliver him into his hand. Now, David became aware that Saul had come out to seek his life while David was in the wilderness of Zip at Horesh. And Jonathan, Saul's son, arose and went to David at Horesh and encouraged him in God And thus he said to him, do not be afraid because the hand of Saul, my father, will not find you and you will be king over Israel and I will be next to you and Saul, my father, knows that also. So the two of them made a covenant before the Lord and David stayed at Horesh while Jonathan went to his house. What a beautiful reality here. So David's still on the run, still in caves and strongholds and forests and in the wilderness, but his faith is being refined. That's how it works. Faith is not refined on the comfy couch watching TV. Faith is refined in the caves and in the strongholds and in the difficult seasons. Proverbs 17, three, the refining pot is for silver and the furnace for gold, but the Lord tests hearts. Isaiah 48, verse 10, God said to Israel, behold, I have refined you, not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. That's where the refinement happens. Philippians 1.20, I'm just reminding you of this in case you thought, you know, I, I really like the seasons where we skate more easily. Yeah, I like them too, but that's not where I'm being refined. Philippians 1.29, for to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. What? Yeah, because there you're being refined. That's where it takes place. But at just the right time, the Lord encourages David. This is phenomenal. And I was wrong. I gotta correct something because I I said that it was the last time Jonathan and David were gonna see each other when David departed. No, no, that was wrong. This is the last time. Are you sure, Rick? Yeah, because I read ahead, so we're okay. (laughs) This is the last time. Now, Jonathan comes to David. These two friends meet, but what encouragement. I just want you to note Two little phrases here. In verse 14, but God, which is a great phrase. My wife has a sweatshirt, and that's all it says on the back of it, but God. It's like, but God what? Yes, that, that ask, you're asking the right question. But God did not deliver him into his hand. God stood for David. This is so encouraging. But God, and yet at the same time, but God, and then verse 16, and Jonathan. This is key. This is key really to maintaining encouragement and walking in strength even while we're being refined. But God is working. God is with you. And Jonathan, you need an and Jonathan. And God will send an and Jonathan. And maybe that's what you need to pray. Maybe you're in the position of, I know God is with me. I know, but God will take care of this. But I'm so alone in this, Lord. Then pray for a Jonathan. Or let me, let me tell you something. Better yet, better yet, Be a Jonathan. Be a Jonathan. You realize that the best way to find encouragement in yourself is to go encourage someone else. You know, don't don't, don't sit there and go, well, no one at church talked to me when I came this Sunday. (laughs) Be a Jonathan. 
you go talk to somebody. It was so funny, Chris, Chris uh, told me, uh, it was on Sunday, he said, I was, looking at, I was looking at Google, I was looking up the bridge, and he goes, and I found, I found reviews. I love church reviews. <laughs> I really do. <laughs> so there were all these really cool, you know, really nice things people were saying, but there was one, there was one. You wanna hear what it is? Jake doesn't wanna hear it, I'm gonna tell you anyway. <laughs> this is the most unfriendly church I have ever been to. And then went on to say, I came on a Sunday morning and no one talked to me, so I left before the service even began. <laughs> Give us a chance, you know? But hey, if you walk into a church and no one says hi to you, be a Jonathan. Be a Jonathan. I, I feel bad. When I, when I read things like that, I'm like, oh, you know, that's, that's someone that we missed. That's someone that we just, we didn't catch. And that can happen. We're human beings. We're not omniscient. We're not a bunch of gods running around here. But it always breaks my heart when I read something like that, and yet on the other hand, I think if you're out encouraging other people, you are not gonna be whining that no one's encouraging you. And you will find encouragement in encouraging others. But, but God and Jonathan, we need and Jonathan in our lives. Proverbs 27, nine, oil and perfume make the heart glad, so a man's counsel is sweet to his friend. So be a friend. My dad told me that throughout my life. Rick, if you want a friend, you gotta be a friend. I'm like, I'm trying, dad. <laughs> so this phrase encouraged him. Note this real quickly, that Jonathan does this in verse 16. He encouraged him. He encouraged him in God. Literally, he strengthened his hand. Jonathan strengthened his hand. In a later study, not far off, in fact, it's chapter 30, we're gonna see a horrible crisis. David is holed up at a city called Ziklag. Ziklag is kind of David and his mighty men. That's their, that's their city for a while. And all their wives and their kids are there and that's where they kind of hole up. But David and his men are out on a kind of a reconnaissance mission and they hear that the Amalekites have raided and burned Ziklag and kidnapped all the women and children. So they go back. And 1 Samuel 30, verse six tells us, listen to this, David was greatly distressed because the people spoke of stoning him. All the guys, all the mighty men, they're so angry, they're so upset. Wives, children, gone, city burned to the ground, everything lost. Whose fault is it? David for taking us out on mission and leaving them all here and they wanna stone him and the people are embittered, each one because of his sons and daughters, but David strengthened himself in the Lord. And the word strengthened there is the same word strengthened that we have right here. Jonathan strengthens David, and then David strengthens himself. Where did David learn how to strengthen himself in the Lord? Perhaps from Jonathan. Most certainly while he was on the run, he learned how to do this, maybe up in the cave with his harp writing another psalm. Can you imagine at night what that would have been like? And I do romanticize this a bit, thinking about being among the mighty men and following David around and being up there in the caves and in the stronghold. And late at night, we're looking up at the stars and sitting there feeling sorry for ourselves and the music on the harp begins. And the sweet psalmist of Israel starts to sing and finds himself praising the Lord. And you just sit there going, oh, this is good stuff. This is so much better than Saul has slain his thousands and David his 10,000s. I'll take a psalm of praise any day. Well, David strengthened himself in the Lord. This meeting with 
Jonathan is the last one, last time he sees, he sees Yanni right here. And what's really kind of bittersweet about it is that they make this covenant together. Jonathan says, I stand with you. I will stand with you. You will be king. He really encourages David. But we know he's not gonna stand. We know they will never see each other again. We know that Jonathan is going to be killed in battle before David becomes king. And so it's a, it's a sorrowful thing because we can look ahead and, and we know what's coming. David will be king. Jonathan will not be there next to him. Verse 19, then Ziphites came up to Saul at Gabeah saying, is David not hiding with us in the strongholds at Horesh and on the hill of Hachilah, which means darkness, which is on the south of Yeshimon, which means desolation. Some people could say David's life at this point is darkness and desolation. David would write a psalm and praise the Lord. That's what the Lord does in the heart of the spiritual person. Now then, O king, come down according to all the desire of your soul to do so. They're talking to the soul, man. And our part shall be to surrender him into the king's hand. Saul said, may you be blessed of the Lord, for you have have had compassion on me. Again, he knows all the religious talk. Go now and make more sure and investigate and see his place where his haunt is and who has seen him there, for I am told he's very cunning. So look and learn about all the hiding places where he hides himself and return to me with certainty and I will go with you. And if he is in the land, I will search him out among all the thousands of Judah. And then they arose and they went to zip before Saul. Now David and his men were in the wilderness of Maon in the Arabah to the south of Yeshimon. When Saul and his men went to seek him, they told David, and he came down to the rock and stayed in the wilderness of Maon. And when Saul heard, he pursued David in the wilderness of Maon. I mean, he just will not leave David alone. Saul went on one side of the mountain, David and his men on the other side of the mountain, and David was hurrying to get away from Saul, for Saul and his men were surrounding David and his men to seize them. But a messenger came to Saul saying, hurry and come for the Philistines have made a raid on the land. So Saul returned from pursuing David and went to meet the Philistines. Therefore, I love this, they call that place Selah Hamalachot, the rock of escape. The rock of escape. Psalm 18, verse two, David will write, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Think about the language of David in the Psalms that would not be there if he hadn't spent time in the rocks and the caves and the strongholds. I mean, it informs even the music of praise, that time of David's refinement. This is a man who has changed. This is a man who is having his faith refined on the run. And Jesus, by the way, is our Selah Hamalachot, Jesus is our rock of escape in more ways than one. Not only the one in whom we find our peace and our respite and and our our safety, but he's a rock of escape. He said in Luke 21, 36, keep on the alert at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are about to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. And that day of escape is coming. Jesus is our rock of escape. Until then, we're being refined. Verse 29, David went up from there and stayed in the strongholds of Engedi. Engedi, that means the spring of the gazelle. And there we're gonna see the, truly the most beautiful moment of the refinement of the spiritual man. 
takes place at En Gedi because his faith is going to be so refined that we're gonna watch him offer forgiveness to Saul. Let's pray. Father, thank you for taking us through your word and for these ancient words that are so profound and so filled with truth, so filled with grace and so instructive to our lives. And Holy Father, I just pray, instruct us in the way we should go. Instruct and inform our spirits. May we always be those who have a spiritual mindset. We recognize, Father, we trip and we stumble and we flee and we, and we find ourselves in difficult and anxious positions. May we always be those who turn our soul to the Spirit, the Spirit of the living God. May we be those who trust in you with all of our hearts. And Lord, may we spend our lives like David, being people after, people pursuing your heart, that we might be, Lord, pleasing to you in faith and refined in the furnace even of affliction. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen.